Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If this is your first time listening to the show, a bit about me. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for working women. And I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women that you can find at all good bookstores. On today's show, I'll be interviewing beauty and tech entrepreneur Sharmadine Reed, who probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and give her one anyway. Sharmadine made her name within the beauty industry through WAH, the nail salon and beauty brand that opened in Dalston in 2009 and kicked off the nail art trend globally. WAH went on to have an outpost in Topshop's London flagship store and a standalone store in Soho, as well as a product line that was stocked in boots. And even though WAH closed its doors for good just a couple of months ago, it's unquestionably a brand that has left a permanent legacy within beauty and girl culture around the world. A serial entrepreneur, Sharmadine has now turned her hand to the tech world, building what sounds like it's going to be the next big beauty company in the form of Beauty Stack, which is a platform that allows you to book beauty treatments via images. Sort of like if Pinterest or Instagram had a booking function built in. On this episode, we'll be discussing the secret to building culturally influential brands and businesses, touching on everything from social media strategy and trend forecasting to raising investment and managing a team. Hope you enjoy. So Beauty Stack is an app that allows you to book beauty treatments via pictures in a networked environment. So you can see what your friends are booking and like follow your friends and see their treatments. And it allows you to book the picture directly with the beauty professional who actually did it. So typically you would screenshot or save lots and lots of pictures of things that you want. And then you take them to your local person and hope they'd be able to do it when really you should just book it with the person who did it for your sake so that you can feel satisfied with the finished look but also to support that young person or woman who is grafting away. I had the idea for Beauty Stack through my WAR experience because I had always taken pictures of the nails that we did. When I opened WAR in 2009 the beauty landscape was completely different Firstly, beauty just wasn't a thing. <laughs> if you worked in fashion in that time, the beauty team were always the few back pages and like, you know, the team was always super small and it wasn't as respected or admired as it is now. So I knew that to get people to understand what what was about, I'd need to take a lot of photographs, not only of the work that we did, but of the girls who came in. So what I did was Instagram didn't exist yet. So I put them all on Facebook and Tumblr. We had a Tumblr and I'd photograph all the nails. Unfortunately, that these amazing images meant that we'd get hundreds of inquiries a day. People saying, what is it? How much is it? How long did it take? Who did it? Is it acrylic? Is it gel? What if I wanted it blue or pink? And I'd be like, oh my goodness, it'd be so much easier if you could just book the picture. It'd save us so much admin. That was it. It's interesting that you say that because I think of WAR as a brand and also Beauty Stack as brands and businesses that are really big on Instagram and kind of use Instagram very much to their advantage but you started in a pre-Instagram age you know besides from sharing stuff on Facebook and Tumblr how did you get the word out with your businesses when you first started? So the really fascinating thing is that I know you say it you know in a casual blase way that I used Facebook and Tumblr but it was that precise point of difference that made us famous so if you think about again it's so hard like how old are you now like 28. 28. <laughs> so imagine when you were 18, mm. 
you know, if you built a website on like Wix or GoDaddy, you'd be relying on someone to Google you. You'd be relying on press. Someone would basically have to search you and know the exact name and thing of what you're doing. The difference with Tumblr is it's in a networked environment. So you just put your work up and it's you've got a back end of millions of people sharing. It's the difference between having a directory of like a list of websites built on singular entities versus a networked entity with millions and millions and millions of interactions. So the very fact that I used Tumblr and didn't hire a web developer, pay them five or ten grand, build my website on, I don't know, Shopify or whatever else, meant that we became famous. And in terms of the sort of getting Beauty Stack off the ground, so because it launched officially, it was October of last year, is that right? Well, we never really launch, launch, because we're constantly building the product. We're planning another big launch of sorts in a couple of months' time. But in terms of like when you kind of started assembling the team and started putting the product out there, like how did you go about doing that? Because I know you've raised investment along the way. So you have this idea, like this is the way we should be booking beauty. This is how it should work. How did you go from idea to this office that we're sitting in that has dozens of people in it and, you know, it looks amazing? How, what was that journey? Oh my God, there's so much in there. (laughs) Firstly, I would caveat what I'm going to say with the fact that, unfortunately, because of my public persona in beauty, I didn't feel allowed to truly complete a product to a state where I felt like I could go, ta-da! I felt like there was a massive expectation of me, like, what's Sharma up to? What's she doing? So I kind of, essentially, I didn't have time to have a terrible product. Mm. Like, if you look at startups, you have, like, a kind of crappy version that Mm. people can test out and give you feedback on. And I think that I wasn't allowed... Well, even now, there's just a higher expectation of me. Yeah, I'd agree that there is a higher expectation of you because you obviously, like you say, you have a public persona and you've done so many impressive things. But on the flip side, is that not something... And I'm genuinely asking, is that not something that's like helped in terms of getting the word out there with Beauty Stack? It's helped because it means that our beauty professionals trust me Mm. in that they know, well, Sharma's actually run a nail salon, so if she's building a booking system, there's an element of she understands what we need. But it means that I don't have the space to, like, have mini failures Mm. about it. But from idea to where we're sitting now, I'll tell you the journey. So I... I've always had an idea of building a salon software system because when I opened WAR, I couldn't believe how bad the systems were. There was no startup ecosystem in London, though. There was no Silicon Roundabout and, like, Google Campus and all of that jazz. So I kind of didn't think it was achievable for me. And then slowly, as the years passed by, not only had no one truly solved the problem that I was still facing as a salon owner, but building software and starting a tech company just seemed possible to me so the first thing I did was work on my pitch deck I did the deck for myself to clarify my thoughts you know I read every single blog post listened to every single podcast and had pitch decks and pitching and then I did my deck and I showed one person and they were like "Mm, yeah we're not sure about this so then I so that was a potential investor yeah okay this was in July 2016 okay so just before I opened the Soho Soho I knew I had to open another salon because I'd closed all my salons at that point I'd moved back to my hometown I knew I had to move back to London open a salon because only through opening a salon would I still understand the problem 
when you don't have a shop floor, it's hard to remember what the original problem was. You get it gets lost. So I yeah moved back to London October 2015. July 2016, I did the deck. Meanwhile, I'm building the new salon, which opened November 2016, so exactly a year later. I kind of paused working on the beauty stack. From November 2016 to May 2017, I was getting the salon in order, hiring, making sure everything was running smoothly. And then in May 2017, I was like, see ya. And then I just started working on beauty stack again i refined my deck i worked in a free office space that a friend gave me like by myself like sat in this room i found my two co-founders dan and ken who are the most amazing engineers so they cover it from the tech side yeah okay so we now are in the room so now it's september 2017 so the whole of summer i'm just like socializing my idea Mm. That's a really important thing that people don't do enough. Like you have to keep talking about your idea all the time because every single time you tell someone at a party, oh, I'm working on, I remember I would tell everyone, I'm going to open a nail salon. And they'd be like, really? And you're getting micro bits of feedback every time. So the whole of summer 2017, I was researching my market, refining my pitch deck, socialising my idea, getting Dan and Ken on board. And then September 2017 is when we first, all three of us sat down in a room and started working properly, coding the first version. And did you do that before you had any investment? So that summer, I think I raised like 70k from, I wouldn't say friends and fam, because I've got no rich friends or fam. (laughs) It was like people of people, contacts, yeah. yeah. A couple of, yeah, I think three or four angel investors. What that 70K allowed me to do. By the way, that whole summer, I slept in my best friend Grace Ladoja's spare room. I gave up my house because I just wanted to spend, like, have reserves of cash to pay Dan and Ken, who had been contracting before. So I sacrificed a lot that is a in, lot the, you know I've got a son we, yeah we, we, I didn't know that yeah like, we, in, I didn't know that that's where you're living yeah I mean I stayed in I mean Grace's house is sick like <laughs> it was I wasn't slumming it you know what <laughs> I mean but yeah firstly it was really nice to just like live with my mate again and like you know be almost I haven't lived with anyone since I was 21 actually Grace lived with me okay. when we were 21 when she was between houses so it was actually like a full circle yeah, of like yeah. favour returning yeah. And Grace is my son's godmother, so it was absolutely wonderful for us all to spend time together when we weren't flying and travelling. But, you know, I got up every morning and took Roman on the overground from Canterbury to Kensal Rise every day. It was like a real scrappiness to it. Then, with that 70k, it meant that I could hire a designer to do the designs of the... It was actually a web app, not an app, to begin with. I was building my original process was I'm going to build Tumblr for beauty pros and instead of liking a picture or reblogging you get book a picture Mm -hmm. and my whole thing was like some reblogs don't put food on the table Mm -hmm. like with WA we got half a million followers makes no difference to ourselves whatsoever I've heard you say that before and I want to understand because for me like WA's Instagram was such a big part of it and like your Instagram strategy was really amazing. Like something that I noticed that I think WA started doing, a lot of people now do, is like the kind of behind the scenes content, which Mm. is like sharing the people behind the brand and the girls that come in. Now I think that's a really obvious thing that pretty much every brand in that space does. But I think WA was kind of one of the first people to start doing that. So if that wasn't the thing that gets people through the door, 
what role does it play? Why, why have an Instagram at all? It definitely contributed to getting people through the door. But what you've got to remember for a service-based business is there is a limit to the amount of people you can physically fit in one day. And that's the difference. If you're a product-based business, then by all means, half a million followers could mean one million products, you know. But half a million followers for us means we can only physically fit 50 people a day. It doesn't matter if all of them actually wanted to book in. For me, I was like, actually, how can we just maximise a girl who's got a 1,000 followers and get 20% of them to book in once a month? Mm. So I was like, I'm going to build Tumblr for beauty pros because Tumblr is what made us famous, right? So then I would highly recommend the first bit of money you get is spent on a prototype because showing people something is far easier than explaining it. You know, whatever you have to do in a hacky prototype way, I spent most of that money on the designs. Mm. Not a logo or branding. I just mocked up, I used a free font off the internet, mocked up a background. It was like what the platform would look like. Then from those designs, Dan and Ken could code it. And then I would basically be a product manager and like be like, no, this button needs to be here and this is the flow and all of that. And it was actually so fun. We were just mm-hmm. sitting in this like little room and it was actually in Facebook's like, it was Facebook's spare meeting room. They just oh, gave wow. us this meeting room. And I was sat with um, Michelle Kennedy of Peanut and they were just starting. Well, actually they were a year ahead of us, but it's just like me and Peanut and it yeah. was so great. And then we raised our first check from Local Globe. So Susan Ashman of Local Globe, who's amazing, I pitched to her and she was like, yeah, we're in. Yeah. What do you think sold her on it? Local Globe love businesses that power other businesses. And I think that was it. I think they have this thing called founder market fit, mm-hmm. which is how experienced in the market is that founder. So let's say that I had just had a random idea and I have ideas all the time. Like I've got an idea for a parking app, right? as I'm sure most people in London do. Now, if I started building a parking app, I've never worked in transport, never worked in the council, local authority. I know nothing. Even if my idea was incredible, I have no respect in that industry. So she was like, your founder market fit is so strong because you built while you understand it. Many beauty booking systems are not actually built by the anyone who's ran a salon Mm. so there's just very small nuggets of insight that could be useful in the future so she was super supportive like so great and local globe as a whole were just amazing so we raised that money from them in january february 2018 Mm. so september we got together released the first version in january i actually raised the money in october november so when you raise money i think people don't really understand it like actually takes months so you get a term sheet but that means nothing you haven't got the money it takes another two three months of work so when i say i raised the money on this date you agreed it (laughs) Yeah, we agreed it. So we agreed it at the end of 2017, but it hit the bank 2018 early, which meant that we could move into an office. I actually decided to move the office next to my son's school to make it very easy for me to be a working mother. Um, Then we released the first version in January 2018. So for four months, we worked our asses off. We actually moved around. We were in second home in Holland Park for a while. We like hopped around just with our laptops and then finally settled in West London. The first version of the product was released and it was 
really good. You logged in, you customized a website. It was like a mini Squarespace or Tumblr, yeah. but the images were connected to your calendar. So the minute you booked an image, it would attach the picture to the booking. So when mm-hmm. you opened up your calendar, the picture would come up so the girl would know what you wanted before you even came in. Yeah. I seeded it to eight early users mm-hmm. who had been on the journey with me from day one. So they included Bam Brows, Awoma, Skin Doctor, like Slash Beauty, like my people I'd discovered really early on yeah. that I was like, you'd be right for this. Then they were all like, uh, we don't use laptops. <laughs> That is a good point. So I was like, I was, oh my God, how did I even, t- what was I even thinking? So then I was like, shoot. So I was going to ask you when you decided to take it from like a desktop app to a mobile app. That's what happened. Okay. I am 90%, I'm sorry, 95% clarity, yeah. 5% cloudy. I slipped into my cloudy moment. I was like, oh my God. So for a week I was, um, what am I going to do here? And then I'm, I'll never forget, I walked into the room at Second Home and I was like, guys, stop what you're doing. Let's just stop right now. And they were like, what? They thought I just wanted, was giving up. And I went, we need to build an app. And they were like, oh, is that it? Because I made it really <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> and then it was a Friday afternoon. I was like, come on, let's go to the pub mm. and discuss it. Mm. And it was the first time that I thought... Oh, man, it's crazy how much time you can waste if you're not constantly checking in. Am I I doing the right thing? Mm. That shows the importance of getting, like, user feedback as early as you can. But then the question I have with that is, how do you... I mean, that was obviously a really great insight that has shaped the future of Beauty Stack, but how do you filter out... Everyone has opinions, not everyone is an expert, not everyone knows what they're talking about, so how do you filter out the good opinions, like the ones that you decide to take on, and the ones that are just going to kind of send you on a wild goose chase. Even before that, you have to understand what that users don't know what they want. I was constantly talking to those eight girls in a WhatsApp group. And at no point did anyone say, oh, I'm not sure about designing a website. Because obviously I was like, we're building this product. And they were like, yeah, it's great. You have to constantly observe people in action. It's what people do, not what they say. Mm-hmm. And really, you have to be smart to watch people and give them what they don't even know they want. It's that faster horse thing, right? It's like Henry Ford, that famous quote saying, if I'd asked people what they wanted in like the 1800s, they would have said a faster horse, not a car. Watching people constantly is important. And that's why in this office, we have nail desks and we have treatment rooms because it allows me to observe users all the time. And you work a lot, you do a lot of like user feedback, like you did like the App Insider program and things like that, which is collecting feedback and seeing how people actually operate and how people actually use, which I found really interesting because I think there are so many businesses that don't seem to take on, like even really big businesses that don't seem to be like listening to their users and taking on feedback. So I think it's quite an interesting insight. Yeah, but to answer your question, which is how do you know what feedback to have or not? I follow this framework called the high expectation customer and Julie Supan, who's this incredible woman who was like really early marketing and communications at Airbnb and Dropbox. She, if you Google it, it's an amazing article she's written, high expectation customer, which is focus only on your high expectation customer. The ones who will benefit the most from your product love it the most and share it the most so rather than try go after everyone drill it down 
to the very few niche people who are going to absolutely love your product. Mm. There's also an incredible podcast about this from the founder of the Mal app Superhuman on 20 Minute VC because he shows how he used the high expectation customer framework for real. It's basically you segment all your feedback and ignore the feedback of customers who don't matter to you, which is very hard to do, by the way, and it's the concept of firing your customers. So, for example, on Beauty Stack, we have had hundreds of people sign up for Beauty Stack, and we've only made a few bookable. When I say a few, I mean like 35 or something. And of those 35, there are people for whom it's just not working for them, and rather than keep them on, it's better to say, do you know what, the product is not right for you right now, so just don't use it. Okay. And it's hard to even say that, (laughs) but we're too early. The product's still being finished, and I know the product will never be finished, but it's like technology takes longer to build than you think. And sometimes we take for granted that Instagram is like 10 years old, and people are like, can we have a gallery upload? And I'm like, you're comparing me to a multi-multi-billion dollar app that has been going around for 10 years. And they've forgotten what Instagram used to look like when it first started. If you Google it, or Google Pinterest, Pinterest was janky as hell. Right. We really take it for granted how slow things can be. And I take it for granted for sure. I'm like, dude, we should be so much further. We should be so much further. But my goal right now is to work for the... In fact, I've narrowed it down so small, I've only got four people. I've got four real people on a board. I won't mention who they are. (laughs) And those four real beauty professionals are the only people I'm building for right now. Okay. And once it works for them, it'll work for like 40 and 400 and 4,000 and 400,000. That's the idea. I want to change tech slightly and talk about branding because I very much think of you as like the queen of branding. I think you are brilliant at building brands that really cut through and that are ahead of the curve. And like I said, like everyone saw what you did with WA, everyone's seeing what you're doing with Beauty Stack. And the thing that I've noticed as well, like they're always so like on point and consistent, like even looking around the Beauty Stack office, like it reflects the app, it reflects your Instagram I'm curious as to how do you develop a consistent brand? Like, what are the touch points that you consider in terms of tone of voice, aesthetic? Like, what's your approach to branding? Well, firstly, I want to say thank you for that. (laughs) It's really, really kind. But secondly, I would say it's a team effort now. I definitely have a visual point of view. I was born in 1984. I grew up with MTV and... If you know where I grew up and how I grew up, you know what I'm into, right? Mm -hmm. But as you get on and as your business grows, it's very hard to keep that consistent across different channels. And that's where my team is amazing. So Ellen has written an entire tone of voice document. It's like a 60-page document about who we are, how we communicate, the type of things we talk about. Even, you know, things like what our version or understanding of feminism is like what how we talk about clients how we talk about earning money Mm, I love the sound of that it's incredible like I can show it you before we go and then Rihanna who's our art director is really good at taking my vision for something and making it a code this is how you know things should look incredible mood boards color palettes all of that so it's a collaborative process where everyone has ownership and one of our company principles is universe not you and it's like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because it's gotten to the best position where 
I am not better than any one of the team at doing their job. Does that make sense? Mm. I can't sit there and do what Rihanna does anymore. She's surpassed me and I can't do what Ellen does anymore. They've surpassed me. And, you know, it's been a learning for me. Mm. Did you used to find delegating hard? Because also you're, I don't know whether I can say you're a perfectionist, but you clearly have very high standards. And I think people like that often find delegating quite difficult. So I'm wondering whether that's the case with you. I would say that's an accurate observation. I would say that it wasn't that I found delegating hard. I would think because I am naturally good at a lot of things, I would be like, it's quicker to do it myself. Mm. I can just do it myself. Mm. I think that what I look for in hires is that high standard and that personal motivation to do the very best work you can. Mm. And what I'm learning right now as I build the team at Beauty Stack is if that's not innate to you, you can't thrive here. The people who thrive here are people who it's important for them personally to do really the best they can be, you know, and also people who thrive off not necessarily competition, but being respected by their peers for the work they do. Mm. Like what's lovely is hearing people say in the office, like her work ethic inspires me Mm. or the way that he approaches a task is like, I'm like, whoa, I want to learn from that. So I guess what I'm learning now is that you can find those people. You just have to have hiring methods to unearth them. So what are your hiring methods? I'm still learning that. Okay. I've never had a team this big in How my big life. is the bead stack team? I think it's 21 people. Wow. I've never managed 21 yeah. people before. I mean, I don't actually manage 21, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I've never yeah. been responsible. Yeah. What are some management lessons that you've learned along the way? Because you've been you have been managing people for a long time now and also in different contexts and different yeah, formats. Yeah, yeah. Like I imagine managing people within a salon. It's completely different. different. Yeah, exactly. So what have you learned? Like what have been the challenges? Just tell me about it. So many because you're constantly learning all the time about what works and what doesn't. And the thing I always think is a bit of a shame as a CEO is you don't get to pick and choose which bits you want to do. Mm. Not in the early days, you have to do a bit of everything. So let's say that hiring isn't necessarily my strongest suit because I get so excited about people. I'll just go, yeah, 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 come and join us. And I don't have a method to it. I just get very optimistic and enthusiastic. And what I'm learning is actually I need a process for that. And trial and error, you hire different people in different ways. Like, for example, we've had incredibly successful people who I've just found on Twitter. And we've had people from recruiters who come from huge corporate backgrounds that have failed here, you know? So, like, who knows? (laughs) I'm still learning. I'm really excited about having a leadership team where that hiring process is a shared activity rather than just me. So is it mostly you doing the hiring now? No, no, different. So engineering team hire, I don't know how to hire engineers, but what I do is I come in for the last 10, 15 minutes and do cultural fit on everybody. Okay. How do you make sure that everyone in the company is on the same page culturally? I love that bit. It's really fun. So because we raised our seed round this January, I knew I had a small window of time luxury to get some processes and handbooks in place. So I did the company vision mission principles. I wrote out what our company vision is, 
what our mission is and what our operating principles are. So the vision is the big picture for the next seven years. The mission is what we're doing now, which is global social beauty booking. And then the principles, there's six of them are like launch and learn, which means that we ship product regularly, make it easy and that we build elegant solutions. The universe, not you, I just told you about. And then Rihanna created an incredible interactive website of this vision mission principles then we had an off-site where I get every team to write their own team vision mission principles based on our company one so for example the engineering team have a very different hiring principle to the content team right and even if you drill it down even further if you're a front-end developer you have different principles to a back-end developer so let's say the QA team which is the testers their principles are absolute rigor because obviously they're testers whereas with the front end you can kind of build and see what happens so that was fun because everyone had ownership over their team vision mission principles Then I wrote an onboarding plan for everybody. So we have these really extensive checklists of, upon acceptance, what they need to do two weeks before the start date, the day before they start, first day. So on their first day, they get introduced to the team, they get a welcome pack on their desk, and there's a checklist, and they're assigned a buddy, and the buddy is responsible for executing this checklist. At the end of everyone's first week, we always introduce them at lunch and say, how was their first week? We have a team lunch every Friday. So we always welcome new hires. We have a guide to working with me every Friday. So after about two weeks, I usually present their guide to working with me. There's just this endless checklist. But you know what? Before we had the checklist, it was a shambles. Mm. The reason I got this process in place is because we had some terrible onboarding experiences where people had no idea what they were doing no idea who this new team member was their computer wasn't set up they didn't know the login for slack you know so I was like how do I increase efficiency yeah because doing these things up front saves time and makes people feel more comfortable and settled which is obviously a huge part of it but if you think about it just in terms of productivity and efficiency yeah I presume it does the time I spent doing onboarding meant that the money we saved was huge Mm. because people could just hit the ground running at the end of the first week they should have a first go at their OKRs their objective key results which means that I'm on the weekend and I think about this psychologically as well I think what does it mean to end your first week And have something to get your teeth into Monday morning of your second week. Because on the weekend, you'll be thinking about it. Then you'll come into work on Monday. You'll know exactly what you're working on. There's nothing worse than starting the week on Monday, having no idea what you're doing that week. Mm. There's nothing worse than starting a new job and feeling like people aren't prepared for you to be there. It's not a great... I've had that before. It feels like people weren't ready. They weren't expecting you. Didn't know who you are, anything. So another thing we do is in the weekly all hands, I have a bit where it says who's coming soon. And it means that every single week... They might be on that board for eight weeks, but it means that every week for eight weeks, I've said this person's starting. So no one's in any doubt when they start who they are, you know? Yeah. I want to talk about trends and kind of trend forecasting because I think I've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I think part of the success with WAR was that it was very much ahead of the curve. And I know you used to work as a trend forecaster before you opened WAR. And now with Beauty Stack, the thing that I've kind of said before to other people, maybe I've even said it to you, but 
it feels like a really obvious idea that I'm like, I can't believe, and I mean that in the best possible way, I can't believe nobody has done this before. And it again feels like you're kind of the first person to do something that should have been done. So I want to understand how you are so future facing. Is it stuff you read? Is it stuff you consume? Like, how can people stay one step ahead the same way you do? That's my secret sauce. Oh, come on, <laughs> let us in, share us a little bit. No, you can teach anything, I think. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I do think, I wasn't sure whether to ask that because I was like, things like that are often quite innate to a person and their interests, but I think there must be elements of that that other people can learn from. I am a naturally curious person, so there definitely is an innateness to it. But I think that what has always held me in good stead is pattern recognition across multiple industries. So if you think about the type of media you consume, many of it will stay within the same realm. So it might be that your interests are... Like, if you think about what Amazon would recommend for you, how varied is it? Mm. So it's like, am I reading a classic fiction book like The Great Gatsby? And then am I reading a business book? Am I reading a sustainability book? And then am I reading the latest fashion book that's come out? And then you think the same about your magazine taste, your podcast taste, everything. And I think that my taste, my media consumption is so varied that when I see patterns across varied media, I know it's a thing. Well, I just notice it, to be honest. And that's the thing that's hard to teach because two people could read the same book and just not see the thing. I read a lot of history because I think most of this stuff's cyclical. And it could be something from the 80s or something from the 1800s. Think about, like, the guy who invented the Marcel wave. Yeah, I wrote about this, like, why build beauty stack? In 1800s in Paris, some guy was like, if I heat up metal and put the hair around this hot metal, it keeps a curl. And his name was Marcel, and that's how we had the Marcel wave, which then ended up being, like, flat irons, which ended up being, like, let's plug it in so it's safer, so we're not heating it up in a fire, which then becomes GHDs, which then becomes an entire multi-multi, hundred-million-dollar industry of hair straighteners. Mm. That's fascinating. That's one guy over 100 years ago who had an innovation which then changed the course of beauty forever because you underestimate that guy's power when you look at the fact that there was a whole era, there is a still era now where you don't actually know what anyone's natural hair looks like. Like as in my friend, when we're on holiday, it's the first time I knew her hair was curly, like an Italian girl. I didn't know she had curly hair. Just because she just straightens it all the time. Every day. So what that guy's actually done is changed our perception. You know your book, Trick Mirror, that you gifted the other day? I started reading it, and it's that thing. It's like, wow, I didn't know your hair was curly, and that was a knock-on effect of a guy from 100 years ago discovering that heat straightens hair. Mm. That's really amazing. And also it makes me think, like, what's, like, the ripple effect that Beauty Stack's going to have in, like... 100 years time. Yeah, and I'm excited about that. The reason for that particular story is that innovation comes from the shop floor. So you have to watch what's happening, all the human interactions on a daily basis to know what's going on next. And if your eyes aren't open, you'll miss a trick. (laughs) I really like that you have 
that attitude and that you're sharing that because I think in this day and age where a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs, they want to start their own businesses, they kind of look at the glitz and the glamour and they A, don't realise or don't want to be doing the kind of stuff where you're getting your hands dirty, but they don't realise the importance of it. So they think it's just all about, I don't know, raising shit tons of cash and flying to Silicon Valley and meeting with investors. And it's like, no, you literally have to have your feet on the ground and your hands in the thick of it at all times. I just think that's a really important takeaway message for people who want to enter into that space. But I want to talk to you a little bit about money and funding and accounting. While it was a physical space, and obviously it kind of, you know, it was a brand that kind of transcended just the physical space, but how did you learn about the accounting and operation side of that? Because I also know from friends who've run physical spaces that there's a lot going on there. So how did you learn about that? I literally didn't. Okay. You have to remember that I didn't start WAR as a business in that I had a very successful career as a stylist and a consultant. I was earning so much money. I was 23 years old, travelling the world. I started WAR magazine and I opened WAR salon as a fun hangout spot for my friends. I did a very basic cash flow forecast and thought, I can't possibly lose money from this because the space was so cheap. But I never even thought about how I was going to make money. And I also knew that to make money, I would have to cut a lot of corners. And I didn't really want to do that. So it's never really been about making money for me. And to be honest, after six months of opening the salon, I was like, whoa, I never what the hell, this has taken off massively, I wasn't prepared for this, the demand was like crazy, I didn't know what to do, I wasn't ready. And I didn't really want to start a nail salon, like, while I was a magazine about connecting women in hip-hop, and like, I love getting my nails done, and I wanted my own youth club, I didn't, I thought, so then I started thinking, well, firstly, actually, we just used to get so many opportunities, we've done pop-up nail bars almost everywhere in the world and I said yes to everything we did product lines whether it was collaborative I did a clothing line with ASOS with what like I remember I've got the laser from it <laughs> yeah, just did all kinds of stuff but and I was like trying stuff out I was like wait does this make money or does that make money but then I was like wait do I like doing this bit do I like doing that bit and what I realized was I didn't really want to have a chain of salons and I didn't really want to make product I felt like the rhetoric was in beauty that you have to make product to be successful and it's completely true you have to make product to be successful and I love the creative process of product but I didn't like the selling part of product and I just like you've said about your friends who've got physical spaces I struggled with the chaos of it and I struggled with the feeling that my path had been diverted and chosen for me instead of having autonomy over what I wanted to do. And then one day I was just like, what am I doing? I need to check out. So I just closed all the salons down, went back to my hometown and thought about what I really wanted to do. I have to keep working. I'm not the kind of person who could just do nothing, right? So I kept making my products, my nail polishes. I loved making those products. And then by the time it came to selling them and I moved back to London, I was just like, "Mm, it's kind of all a bit of a lie. Like when you make beauty products, it's like so much claims. What do you mean by that? Silkier hair, softer skin, fuller lips. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, that claims are not 
for me okay. it just don't doesn't yeah, yeah. feel authentic to me yeah. you know what I mean the selling like the, the selling sell, bit yeah. is so weird and then I thought you know what I'm really really good at I'm really good at creating experiences and I'm really good at bringing people together what is actually closing today forever Gosh, end of an era end of an era and the messages and the positivity i've had about oh my god you inspired my career in nails or my career full stop or i met my best friend in your salon i met my business partner in your salon like those are the things i just i know i'm good at that stuff right so i kind of thought why am i forcing myself to do things that are not my strongest point what is strong for me these types of things but how can i do them at scale and that's how I thought about Beauty Stack. And in terms of your cash flow and accounting, I never really ever found a good accountant. Oh, really? I mean, I have now with yeah. Beauty Stack. We've got an incredible accountant. They specialise in startups, give me all the information. I never felt like I had someone who had ownership over my finances. Yeah. I also never found the perfect operating partner for me and that could have been to do with complete inexperience in management and delegation like at war I never found that I was able to delegate properly the running of the business mm. to well like I said my inexperience and not finding the right person what's really cool about building beauty stack is I've taken all these lessons right and hiring for my blind spots is like number one mm. and it takes ages but what I prefer is the quality over like quickly hiring somebody which means that while I'm looking for them things might not be running smoothly but I'm okay with the temporary bumps when you have that in between period it's really tough and it actually can be triggering for me I'm like oh my god I'm here again I'm like back in my little bedroom in Dalston running war and not knowing what to do and then I'm like no no it's fine I've got it in hand like So, yeah, I would recommend that you look for the right person. If finance and operations isn't your strongest suit, not even if it's not strong, if it's not the thing you love doing every day, then find the right person to do it. In terms of across all your businesses and all your experiences being a founder, in terms of money lessons, what are the things that you have, A, spent money on, obviously, as the business? What are the things that you've spent money on because you thought you had to and have later realised you didn't need to? And what are the things that you've scrimped on because you thought you could and later realised you should have spent money on? So for anyone who's running a physical or very early stage business, the thing I scrimped on was senior leadership. I never hired someone who was really senior and experienced because I'll never be able to afford them. Anyone who is expensive and good will pay for themselves. Okay. Probably one of my biggest regrets is not having senior leadership at WA, like super early on. And I mean properly senior, not someone who's like really hardworking and good at their role, but someone who thinks about bigger picture and also is able to execute it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I overly spent money on was physical space. <laughs> it's so expensive. Fitting out salon or doing a pop-up or anything physical, cost, doing a trade show costs money. So much money and almost always spirals out of control. Yeah. There's so many times when I would I would say to you, I wish we never had that pop-up, trade show, anything. With Beauty Stack, the things I have scrimped on and I wish I didn't, I wish I had looked for a full-time product designer from day one. It's, it limits you big time. 
And I presume you have someone now, but is it just that you wish we you have probably... people who can design the product, but we don't have someone whose full time mission is what is this product design looking like? And I'm looking for that person now. And then the thing I splurged on with Beauty Stack consultants, waste of money. Really? Mostly. Because you've just said that hiring people, even if it's, you know, full time or temporary, or whatever, hiring people who fill your blind spots is a good thing to do and I presume with consultants that's what you're trying to do yeah but it's like for the need right now as in let's say I don't have a HR person right I'd have to hire a consultant to run HR while I'm finding a HR person the difference is that consultant is so expensive and they're not fully embedded in your company culture mission everything it's temporary right so it's like the cost of it doesn't fully support the returns not as high yeah that makes sense it's like you have to do it yeah and it it's not something that I would say I wish we never spent on. It's more that I'm just like, oh, so annoying that I have to have this person in temporarily. It's not a cost-efficient way. It's of... not cost-efficient. Okay. But it's you have to do it, I mean, at, at times to get the thing done. Okay. What is the most challenging aspect of what you do? People. My personality is quite weird in that I seem really social, but I'm actually not. <laughs> like, for example... I'm good at introducing two people, having a little chat and then walking off. Mm-hmm. I almost mostly would rather be by myself or with one person rather than in a group or a small group I'm fine with. I struggle with people who aren't move as fast as me. That's probably my weakest point. If you don't move as fast as me, it can be like I have to search for the sympathy, <laughs> you know? And as you can see, like, I'm an absolute geek. Like, the things that I'm most excited about are really random. And I'm not that excited by many things. So when I'm not excited, I can be, like, a real grump. Sometimes I think I'm, like, a big baby. I'm like, I only want to do what I want to do right now. And I'm just, like, I'm very attentive to my own needs. I think that's a really, really good thing. And it's something that I'm trying to do more of as I get older. And it's something that I didn't manage in my early 20s at all. I think I feel so strongly and so passionately about that and really relate to you on that level. And I think, obviously, it's not good. And it doesn't sound like you're saying that you're, like, selfish or anything like that. And I don't I, think that's I am a good selfish. Thing. <laughs> okay, well, well, maybe. maybe I'll take that I, was, I was waiting for you to finish so I could add on that list of stuff. I mean, also incredibly selfish. But just like you said, in my 20s, I wasn't. Yeah. I worked my arse off for a while for other people because right. I wasn't enjoying it that much. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, my God, our customers love it. My employees love it. But I'm so tired right mm. now. But I carried on doing it. And, you know, I'm 35 now. Like, I'm totally okay with saying, actually, this is what I need right now. But yeah. the difficulty is when that impacts other people. So the balance and the thing I find the most challenging, it's my eternal, eternal dilemma How can I be the kick-ass person who gets shit done, who can build a company, who can put one foot in front of the other, keep things moving forward, but also be compassionate enough to nurture talent, to watch people grow, to give them time to develop and coach? It's not my strongest point. I'm constantly trying to improve on that, 
And where I don't feel I can prove, I try and build other mechanisms for those people to be able to develop and grow. Because like I've said before, my pace is like relentless and exhausting. And I am exhausting to be around because I don't stop. So for people who are around me, it can be quite full on. You know what I mean? I think I've got a very big energy that is all consuming. And if you don't have a strong sense of self, it can be difficult to work with me. The people who work really well with me and the people I feel most relaxed around because I don't have to think about like how I'm acting are people whose sense of identity is so strong that I don't affect them. That makes sense. Like I love that. Yeah. And And I presume that also makes you feel actually like more at ease around them. Big time. Yeah. Because then when I'm more at ease around them, I can focus on my job. And that's my favourite thing to do, <laughs> is to focus on what needs to be done. Rather, It's that classic thing of a woman sending an email when they're like, can I have that report, please? Then they go back and really like, hey, how was your weekend? Just wondering if I could get that report. I'm the kind of person who is always, can I get that report, please? And it's hard for me to take two steps back and be more empathetic Mm. and on one hand I know I can do it but on the other hand that baby in me doesn't want to do it I want to just get the job done and final question really quickly is what is the most enjoyable part of your job oh that's easy I love building the product I love working on the app I love thinking of new ideas I love thinking of new strategies I love thinking of when this app launches in Nigeria, how we oh do God, it. Yay. I love thinking about the girl who can pay for her schooling because she's like doing waxing in a slum. I'm like, people get treatments all over the world, whether you're incredibly rich or incredibly poor, and everyone has smartphones. I'm like, excited about the opportunity of helping mainly women around the world earn more money and be respected for their profession. Like, that's the thing that I enjoy the absolute most but I love being in my office having ideas that is a message that I can definitely get behind thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and that's it for today thank you for tuning in we'll be back next week but for more career inspiration and information in the meantime follow women who at women who on instagram and twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter the roundup you can find me getting into fights on Twitter and Instagramming my shoes at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review as it really does help boost the podcast enormously. See you next week. <laughs>